is Our American Stories. And every once in a while, out of nowhere, Jesse says, hey, I got me a shower thoughts. And so that leads us to our favorite segment here at Our American Stories. And we're always hoping it just comes to Jesse. And as you're going to hear in a second, (laughs) something like this, well, it just doesn't come to you every day. Here we go. Shower thoughts. There might not be anything worse in life than realizing you need to sit on the toilet right after you got out of the shower. (laughs) Using the guest bathroom in my own house makes me feel like I've been transported into another dimension. This is my house, but this isn't my bathroom. Walking around with granola bars in your pocket might make it sound like you're wearing diapers. I almost got into a confrontation at the bar the other day because this guy kept staring at me. Just before I said something, I realized there was a TV right behind my head. You always see men and women with naked lady tattoos, but I don't think I've seen anyone with a naked man tattoo. I wonder if boogers have a distinct smell, but we don't notice because we're constantly smelling them. I wonder how many foods we eat today started out as a dare to put something gross in your mouth. Eggs are delicious, but have you ever deeply thought about just how disgusting what you're actually eating really is? An unfertilized embryo that came out of a chicken's backside? Yuck. Every time someone says more people are killed by deer than sharks, I feel like their conclusions are skewed by the fact that most people are smart enough not to swim in shark-infested waters. They say you get more for your money when you get boxed wine rather than wine from a bottle. Unfortunately, nothing makes you feel more like an alcoholic than having to open that box to squeeze that last cup out of the bag like you're milking a goat. The reason why tomato soup and grilled cheese is such a good combo is because basically it's the same ingredients as pizza. Those in-case-of-contact-with-eyes warning labels will probably be hardest to read when I need them the most. I wonder how many people have a picture of me riding a roller coaster with them in their house. Isn't it crazy there's this giant thing in the sky all the time that we're not supposed to stare at? You know, I'm pretty sure I've never pressed the 7 button on my microwave. I can't decide if people who wear pajamas in public have given up on life or are living it to the fullest. I wonder how often baby twins are mixed up by their parents and go their whole lives with each other's identities. Coffee-flavored water doesn't sound very good, but that's exactly what coffee is. I wonder how many animals we had to jump on the backs of before we noticed that horses were actually cool with it. I'm so happy I live in a world with Facebook. Before that, it would have taken weeks, even months, before finding out someone was a total idiot. Shower thoughts. Thank you for that, Jesse. And we look forward to so many more. And we'll periodically play these again and again. And uh, we love, well, we love our team and we love all the creative thoughts that come from all of them. And we don't force these kind of things. They come, they come, they don't. We run some old ones. And now for our random act of kindness story. And we love telling random acts of kindness here on Our American Stories. Uh, This is about a Fair Oaks, California boy who gets a new soccer ball. And, well, it might not seem like a very big deal to some of us, but it meant the world to a little boy when he had his stolen soccer ball replaced by a total stranger. 
As he was leaving soccer practice a few days ago, 14-year-old Dylan Stewart noticed something wasn't quite right. Someone had stolen his soccer ball. When we were collecting balls, I was looking around for my ball, but I couldn't find it anywhere. He was pretty upset about it, but, you know, we talked about how these things sometimes happen. So Dylan and his mom set out to replace it. But with two other siblings in sports, money for the Stewart family can be tight. We just didn't need to spend more money on the ball than we needed to spend on it. So we were trying to get like a cheaper ball. It was still good and it was still going to last. On Monday, the family stopped by Soccer Pro in Fair Oaks. While in line to pay, a stranger overheard the stewards talking about Dylan's stolen ball. This store security camera captures what happened next. The stranger, paying for a ball of his own, takes a glance back at the family. Then he reopens his wallet. Carlos Ortega was working at the time. The stranger pretty much pays the entire amount, leaving the family a grand total of just three seventy-five dollars for a brand new Arsenal soccer ball. Me and my coworker Juan, we were shocked. We were like, are you sure? And you know, it's kind of one of those things that you kind of don't expect. We were floored and we just, you know, we got in the car and my kids and I all prayed and we had tears in our eyes and it was just, it was a special moment. He didn't know anything about me and, you know, $20 that to somebody else might be no big deal, but to us it was huge. What this kind stranger really gave was much more valuable than $20. And Dylan wasn't the only recipient. A random uh, act of kindness really goes a long way. And then maybe if we do that to another person, then that person, when he grows up, he may do that to the another one. Sounds like the boys have paying it forward all figured out. In Fair Oaks, Joe Khalil, Fox 40 News. Yeah, we love doing these stories. If you've got a story of your own, uh, reach out to our website, our, ouramericannetwork.org, and leave a post for us. We'll follow it down. And if you ever get to watch The Prophet, watch it. Because periodically, you'll see this guy, Marcus Limonis. I was watching it last night, and he was working with a manager at a store. The owners of the store had never really treated her right. He bought that, those owners out, and he just started showering love on this lady who'd been working so hard, but she had never heard the word, you're so good. Well, she turned the whole store around in this Key West pie store, and ultimately... A lot more profit, a lot more energy in the company. And he ended up giving her 25% of the company last night. And it was just beautiful. But she had said something to Marcus. She said, no one's ever said that before to me. No one's ever said, I'm worthwhile. My work is meaningful. And so that's, I think, what's happening in these random acts of kindness. They can be big, they can be small, but they can change a life. Not just a day and not just a moment. This is Lee Habib. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org for all of our stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. 
and we love each week to talk to the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell because she pens the burning question column. And we've dug into some really good questions in the past and are continue with doing just that. This week's burning question, is sitting cross-legged bad for you? And joining us is the aforementioned Heidi Mitchell. Heidi, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> you got it. Hey, let, let's uh, before we get into you know, the, the discussion, I know you've just moved from Brooklyn to Chicago. So you've gone from a big East Coast city to a Midwest city. Um, you know, the folks get to know you. We love to talk about our folks with just what's going on in their lives. How's the move going? And tell us a little bit about Chicago. Well, it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Everybody says the Midwesterners are so nice, and it's true. They are genuinely nice. Everybody, I got texts already and invites and stuff, but it's not easy to make friends, especially when you've been in a place for 20 years, and it's just, even the, a town like New York City can start to feel like a small town. Yep, you bet. And here I am, you know, nobody, don't know anything, don't know what Ada Street is versus Bucktown versus, <laughs> you know I, know, I know where the water is. That's about it. Well, I, you know, I can only tell <laughs> you, every time I've moved, Heidi, I always remember that feeling when I first went to high school from elementary school, and I was like, who are all these people? And I was nervous, and I had to make new friends, and then my family moved, and then I had to do it all over again. And I don't think it ever changes. Yeah, yeah, you know. You ever get good at it? No, I never got good at it, and I and I, and I always dread the next move. And yet, I'm always excited about the next move, and 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 it's both. And you know, ultimately, I don't know that anybody's good at you know change. I think some people are just better at it than other people, but you know, change is always hard. It's not always easy. Um, we'll have to do a story on this someday. But supposedly, it's good for kids. Yes, that moving them just forces them to find new, and then that then they're able to cope in their future when they have a new job or they move to a new city or all the different things. That, that could be a burning question. That could be that a burning question. Be. Is moving good for your kids? Is moving a lot right. good for or your kids? Moving good for you. Excellent. All. So we're covering some ground for the next time we talk. That's Heidi. Right. Thank you for that. Oh, Thank no problem. No worries. So let's talk about this one. How did you come up with this burning question? Well, you know, the, the newsroom, of course, is filled with people sitting all day long. And I am one of, a, I'm a leg crosser, and I'm also a chronic back pain person. So, and someone else in the, in the office, in the newsroom, is a chronic knee pain person. So we were arguing whether or not it's related, and if it's knee, back, whatever. So, so we came up with this, this burning question of, is, is it cross, sitting cross-legged? That's really the thing that's causing all these strange pains in other parts of our bodies. Well, what are some of the myths surrounding sitting cross-legged, Heidi? Well, the big one is, there's two big ones. The biggest one is varicose veins, which it feels like it makes sense, right? Like, you know, you have these bulging veins because one leg's getting the, as I sit here cross-legged, one leg is getting the blood kind of cut off from it um, if it's laying over the other leg. Um but that is actually hereditary, mm-hmm. um, and it can also be due to age and, and obesity. Sometimes during pregnancy, you'd get them. They usually would go away. Um, so, so no, there isn't really a correlation there. Um, and the other big one is um, increased blood pressure. Um, and there have been studies that have shown, like, they took their blood pressure before, and then they had them sit cross-legged, and then they took it after, and it was a little higher. But it turns out that... Um, it was people who already suffered from hypertension. So they already have high blood pressure. And so, it, it, so if you already have hypertension, then maybe it would increase it just a little bit. 
but it doesn't directly lead to sitting cross-legged does not directly lead to increased blood pressure. So does it actually call, what about the knee and back pain that you were talking about? And by the way, Heidi, we always love the fact that you don't just theorize about this stuff. You take a, what's seemingly innocuous question or a, a, an interesting question, but you dig down into the neuroscience or to the, to the actual medical research level. Who did you talk to on this one and what did you learn? Yeah. What I love is that there are experts in this. And actually, the guy I spoke to was Naresh Rao, and he was at the time that I spoke to him at the Olympics. <laughs> um, so he was the doctor of osteopathic medicine for the Olympic team, and he was the physician for, uh, for the whole team, but especially for the uh, water polo, and they won. So he was very happy when I spoke to him. <laughs> That's great. And, and so what, um, and what did you learn from him? What, what did you so learn he, from him, Heidi? So he, um, so he also works in the sports medicine clinic, and he teaches at NYU Langone. And, um, and he said, you know, there's really not been great studies that show correlation between any of your problems that you've got and sitting cross-legged. He did, however, I'll back up a little bit and say that, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but sitting is the new smoking. Yep. Totally different story, but, you know, the more sitting is not really great for you. So try and have walking meetings and try to get outside and walk around or walk every – we've done other stories on that. But he said that, okay, so basically when you sit cross-legged, and all of you listeners, you know, I'm sure most of you are sitting cross-legged, but <laughs> put one leg over the other, and you can see that it's kind of not a great ergonomic position for you. This is what Dr. Rack explained. So it's put the top knee is putting pressure on your lower knee, and meanwhile, you're rotating your pelvis, and then your lower back is kind of, which is called your lumbar spine, is kind of, you know, twisting a little bit and, and hunching a little bit, right? Especially if you're working at a desk, it's maybe not perfectly, perfectly the right height for you. So you are, you're twisted, you're bent, you're pulling your back out of its normal alignment, and then you're putting pressure on one knee over, over the other, <laughs> And so I was like, well, what if you alternate legs all the time, which I seem to do? And he's like, well, then you'll just have two back aches. Right. So he's looking at it holistically and saying, basically, um, you know, you're, it's just not, it's not a great position. It's not great. It's not great. We all do it. It's not great. 20 minutes is fine. Get up, walk around, sit down again. But it's all, it's all related. And we could talk more about that. Yeah. Well, you know, the, but the, it's not, it's not the cause of the back pain. Is it, it just exacerbates the pain? Um, does it exacerbate the knee pain or is it something that can actually cause it? So your body, what happens is, you know, you compensate. So if you, if you've been sitting cross-legged for your whole life, you know, your body gets used to it and it'll compensate and it'll, it'll grow muscles bigger on the one side that's torqued to compensate. And so, you know, your body is a pretty good, well-oiled machine. Um, but yeah, so you you will feel strained over time, but you'll 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 compensate. So um, let's see. So what he says that you can do is um, if if you insist, which my editor did insist that um, her knee problem stems from crossing her legs. Um, he said first 
look at your core. And this is a big one, especially when he's talking about all the athletes that he works with. He said, he said, basically, if you can get your core to be really strong, that's your abdomen, right? Like doing a lot of um, sit-ups and, and push-ups and plank poses and stuff. If your core can be really strong, then no matter really how you sit, you're going to keep yourself in as much good alignment as possible. And you'll switch as you start to feel uncomfortable. Um, so, there are things that you can you can do to reverse which reverse any pain that you might have, which isn't again stemming from this, but is yes exacerbated from sitting with your legs crossed crossed all the time. Um, I feel like I'm a lefty. I sit with my left leg over my right, and I lean to my left, and I can feel I'm bending my left side more, and I have this chronic back pain on my right. <laughs> Now, they're probably not related, but the back pain that I have is constantly being challenged because I'm leaning all the time, putting more pressure on that side. So he suggests that, you know, physical therapy, osteopathic manipulative treatment, um, massage therapy, maybe not sitting for so much, (laughs) doing some exercise. Um, Those are all good things. He also gave a really interesting um, suggestion was, you know, get your desk ergonomically um, fitted out for you. So if your feet, and I'm pretty short, I'm 5'2", so if your feet don't touch the ground, that's probably partly why I cross my legs so that I'm leaning down more and Mm -hmm. I get that extra inch or two. He said get a stool so that your, your feet are then flat on the stool, then you won't really feel the need to cross, to cross your leg. Yep. And by the way, um, he also suggested getting up after every 55 minutes sitting and walk around for five minutes. And, and I've heard that from other doctors as well, you know, and I think that this is, this is for everybody. You know, we don't realize how many hours are you sitting at your desk, Lee? You know, you don't realize that you're, you've gone four hours without getting up. No, it's crazy. And then I sit and watch TV, and then I go walk somewhere to sit again. I mean, I must sit like 90, 95% of my life. It's really tragic. And yeah, I think that's a lot of our listeners, Heidi. Well, Heidi, we love talking to you. And uh, looking forward to this, the, uh, the story we just flipped up and the burning question we just flipped up together. Is sitting cross-legged bad for you? Heidi, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. As always, our burning question with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Iggy Pop. And why are we playing this song? And why are we talking about boredom? We bumped up across a great column by Elizabeth Bernstein, Wall Street Journal columnist. And it's why a little boredom could be good for your relationship. And of course, every week we do Marriage on the Mind with Deb Wolniak at this time. And my goodness, anybody who's been married a while, well, there are pockets of boredom. Is it good boredom? Is it bad boredom? And can boredom be good? This is the question. I think we all think in the end that boredom is bad. And joining us, Elizabeth Bernstein from the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. 
Thanks for having me. You bet. So let's get to that question. Good or bad? Talk about boredom. So boredom in a relationship, many people think that it could signal the beginning of the end. We have nothing to talk about. And in fact, it is a signal that something is wrong. It is always a signal that something is wrong and we need to pay attention. But there are different kinds of boredom. And uh, some of the kinds can be very good. If the signal is that, hey, we're just getting a little complacent, our routine is, uh, you know, stuck in the, you know, grid right now, then it can be a really great opportunity to recalibrate and to reconnect, to sort of see, hey, you know, we got we to gotta pay attention here. And you did write here that the bored brain can be up to something good and not necessarily bad. Talk about almost the science of that bored brain, if you could, Elizabeth. Exactly. So the bored brain, um, we know this from research, uh, is often very creative. Uh, there's different parts of your brain that are working together, uh, they realize, in boredom now that are uh, really solving problems at a very uh, subconscious level. So the prefrontal cortex is highly active in boredom. And this is the part of your brain that consolidates memories, processes emotions, makes decisions. Uh, so that's, you know, when you're bored, all of this is going on. And also something called your default network, which is what really takes over when you're not, you know, thinking of a problem consciously, it's sort of subconscious, uh, that is working hard too. So that you've got, you've got a very fertile brain. When you're bored, your brain is actually working hard. I think, you know, we were, we spent a lot of time on the recording studio called Muscle Shoals, which is in the middle of Alabama, in the middle of Alabama, but has pushed out something in the order of 400 million record sales. And artists from all over the world descended there for 20 years straight, Elizabeth. And they all said the same thing. There was nothing else to do there. There was this beautiful, lazy river. And there was something about the stimulant effect of not having stimuli all around them, like in a big city recording studio. Might there be something to that? Exactly. That's a fascinating example because some of, you know, um, some of our, you know, most favorite music has come out of their American music, right? So uh, it's such a fertile place, as you're saying, and such a, um, you know, area with nothing to do. It's fascinating. This is why writers like to go to writers' retreats. They want to go up in the middle of nowhere in a cabin and not talk to anybody. You know, when there's nothing else to do, it's also, uh, to interrupt myself, it's also why people say, oh, when I walk, when I run, I'm, I, I, I solve problems. I, I'm creative. I start thinking about work. Um, you know, it, it's, there's nothing else to do, and your mind gets really active. It's no, going to have to amuse itself. No doubt. You know, Wordsworth used to talk about those long walks in Lake Country in England, the great poet. And, you know, and William Faulkner, we broadcast from a little town called Oxford, Mississippi. And this is Faulkner country and Eudora Welty country and Flannery O'Connor country. And, you know, some of the great fiction in American history has come from small towns. And uh, boredom probably is a prerequisite for some of these writers doing what they do. Let's talk about you did something interesting. You talked about the five types of boredom. Now, who knew, uh, Elizabeth, that there were five types? But let's walk through each one in different boredom first. Let's talk about that. So in different boredom, this is when you're a little bored. Um, your thoughts might wander. You know, it's kind of a positive experience. You could be, say, you know, at dinner with friends and uh, you're, you know, you're, you're paying a little attention to what's going on at the table, but your mind's watching other people at other tables, what's going on. It's, it's a fairly pleasant experience. It's not something to be too worried about. Yeah, and in fact, it can be sort of fun, that kind of boredom, because uh, you're, not, you're not crazy bored. 
No, you could be enjoying. You're kind of enjoying your table, what's going on there, but you might be enjoying the music in the background and people watching, you know. So, yeah, it's somewhat enjoyable. It's, it's, you're not totally engaged, but you're still kind of enjoying. Yeah, I'd say a few years ago, as my marriage hit the sixth and seventh year, you're at a dinner table, you know everything about each other's lives. The conversation starts to get a little tough sometimes. And we've developed a way of doing people watching, guessing what they are, guessing what they're doing. And it's, it's been a never-ending and ceaseless bounty of entertainment and in a sort of a bored entertainment. We're admitting we're bored, and now we're doing something about it. We're being proactive about it. Talk about that. Exactly. And I think friends can do this, too. You could be out, you know, and, and, you know, what are you going to talk about? I know you really well. You're my best friend. You know, so you'll do that, too. Oh, hey, look at her outfit. Oh, that guy needs to, you know, lose weight. Who knows? You know, so you just uh, I live in Miami, so there's a lot of people watching down here. There's some crazy outfits and um, crazy looking people. So I, I guess I revert to looking at people. But uh, but friends will do this. So uh, it's a again, it's the mind and maybe even the relationship engaging again. You bet. Let's talk about number two, calibrating boredom. So this is where, you know, you're bored and, and um, you want to, you want something more interesting. You're a little annoyed, you know, you, it's not so bad, but you know, calibrating borders, your mind's looking for something to focus on. It's calibrating. Um, so that's that one. Again, not horrible, not horrible in a relationship, uh, but uh, you definitely want something more. Yeah, you're plotting an almost an exit strategy in the moment, it sounds like, Elizabeth. Yeah, exactly. Like your brain is trying to fit. Your brain feels like it has a little problem. I'm bored and I got to figure it out. Then. Yep. All right, let's talk about number three, searching boredom. Searching boredom. So, so this is definitely a negative feeling. You're irritated. Uh, this is when people say, I'm so bored. That is, this is searching boredom. They're looking for something to do. You can think of a little kid. Mommy, I'm bored. You know, it, it's uh, not a pleasant experience. You haven't quite figured out how to entertain yourself yet. You're looking for something. Okay, reactant boredom is number four. So reactant is even more negative. Um, you're, you, it, it's actually people who re- become reactantly bored are, uh, they become almost like aggressive. You, you want, you're, you're really irritated at the situation. You might, you know, say you think your spouse just said something boredom. You might bite her or head, her, his or her head off. You know, you're like, oh, you know, stop that. You know, you're annoying. It's where the arguments come in. Um, it's, it's an aggressive form of boredom. Right. And, and that, that can start to get in the, we're now looking at the real negative space. And I think this almost sounds like it's in descending order of negativity. Last but not least, and I think this is where you can really get in trouble, apathetic boredom. Exactly. This is where you feel helpless. You feel hopeless. Um, it's actually closely related to depression. You know, I'm so bored. I can't even get off the couch. I don't even know what to say to him or her tonight. Like, you know, you're really, um, you feel like there's no point in it. You know, you, you actually see no end of this boredom, this situation. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's the worst. And so how does your type of boredom shape an ideal response? Can you give us an example or two, Elizabeth? So, you know, if you're indifferently bored, you know, say that, again, this is a relationship. Maybe, you know, you know, I'm so sick of eating, you know, meat and potatoes every night. I'm tired of watching the same TV show. Or we always, you know, go to bed at 10, whatever it is. Um, you know, so if you're indifferently bored, that's 
fairly easy for a couple to shake up. You know, you need to uh, just sort of focus on it and think, okay, like, let's try a different relationship. I mean, sorry, a different restaurant. Let's walk to a different, uh, through a different neighborhood when we walk the dog. You know, anything to shake it up. So indifferently bored is, um, you know, pretty easy. When you get to the middle ones, calibrating boredom or searching boredom, where you're irritated, it's not too bad, but you definitely really want more and feel a negative feeling. Uh, So in a relationship, those are ones where you need to talk about it. Well, this is fascinating, Elizabeth. And it's Elizabeth Bernstein, Wall Street Journal columnist. Why a little boredom could be good for your relationship. When we come back, we'll be joined by Deb Woniak for our Marriage on the Mind segment. More after these messages. This is our American story, and I just love that lyric from Chris Stapleton. Turn my life into a country song. I got nobody to blame but me. And we're talking about boredom. We just finished up with Elizabeth Bernstein at the Wall Street Journal. She's a terrific columnist there, and we want to have her on more. What a great voice. What a straight voice, and just good fun to talk to, and real smart. And we like smart, and we like fun here on this show. And now for our Marriage on the Mind segment, and this is just a continuation is Deb Wolniak, our marriage coach, and she's the executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Deb, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Lee. How you doing? You bet. We were just joking off, you know, off air, and you know, I was telling you about a buddy of mine who just crashed his marriage because he was bored. And you and I have often talked about these great trigger points where the marriage goes off the rails, but we never talk about the root causes. And sometimes, Deb. It's just boredom. Talk about that. Yeah. Boredom is kind of that uh, upper level response that is the first thing that we realize, like, I'm just not happy. Some things just like, this is so the same. Why am I feeling like this? I mean, we used to date and we had this passion and I so want that back. And what's interesting is a lot of times couples feel like that and then they don't talk about it. When you say crashing it into the wall, it is literally just letting things ride to the point of no return, where it gets to that critical point that Elizabeth was talking about. And that is a huge red flag for you. Even if you're starting to slightly feel like that, talk about it immediately, because you don't want to get to that level five she was talking about. Yeah, but you know what? You, when you tell your mate you're bored, um, it's pretty hard. I mean, it's uh, that's a tough one, because it sounds like you're saying I'm bored with you as opposed to, as opposed to which I like to always say, I'm bored with us. Because if I say I'm bored with us, I'm throwing myself right into the mix. And by the way, frankly, I think we all get bored with ourselves sometimes. I mean, let's be honest. Right. Sometimes we just want right. to bust out of who we are and become someone else. 
So talk about that. Oh, that yeah, no, that's true. And and I think it's really important to remember that again, as each level of boredom comes, we have to put it into our own situation. So I'm gonna give you an example. I have women that walk in here and one gal that came in said, I have been bored in my marriage for over 20 years, and I've been reinvesting into a different relationship because I just need a little more excitement. She's now at the point where she wants to potentially make a major change. And I'm like, time out. Have you talked to your spouse about this? And um, they have, but not to the extent. So here's, here's a danger. If you feel like you have never talked to your spouse about boredom, um, please, please make sure that you are patient with each other in that process because you're rightly, uh, spouse could take that the wrong way. And the reality is you can be bored in multiple different areas. Some people automatically go, wait a minute, you mean we're not having great sex and you're bored with me? You know, they may have not even been talking about it yep. at that level, but it can be something that can ignite a conversation, but let's focus on what it is. Agree to want to dissect it together. What are you feeling? What do you do? You sense the same thing I'm feeling, and then put your feelings into words or even down on a paper. Some people are really good with lists, and don't be afraid of it. Say we're going to agree to discuss this openly, and then we're going to step back and kind of take a breather and look at it and not react emotionally because some people can get super defensive. So I'm going to throw out a book for you: The Marriage Checkup. It's by Dr. H. Norman Wright. And that book is an easy, easy read that's going to help each of you kind of take an assessment of where you're at. And as you do that, you're going to kind of see where your marriage is at. Now, one reason why people don't always work on their marriage is because, number one, they're bored. Number two, they're scared to talk to their spouse about it. So what do they do? They invest in another relationship. Oh, big mistake. Three steps, you're almost to the point where you're having an affair. Stop, stop, stop. And this can be an emotional affair, too. So what you need to do is back up the truck. Instead of investing in another relationship, invest in the one that you have. You have something there that you've committed your lives to that has value. Now, be honest where you're at and take it logically so you can encourage that relationship. And every effort that you're going to put into a different relationship goes back into yours. And I guarantee you, it will pay off. You will not be um Reward, you will be rewarded. You will not fail in that. You have to work together. That is a plus. Deb, how much of this has to do with just the straight fear of that confrontation? I mean, you know, you work all day. That's hard enough. You got a boss you don't like. Then you come home, and my goodness, the, the world's exploding around you. The kids are doing this. They're not listening to you. Right. You're bored with a husband, and you just go, you know, I just don't want any more conflict. I've got this other person. It's easy. It's like just when I was with my husband the first three months, that's all I want. It's just a little something on the side. All we're doing is talking. It's just some texting. It's nothing physical. It's nothing spiritual. I mean, that's how I've seen it happen with my buddies. And I just want to just, I just want to say, stop, stop. Don't even text. Don't send that email. Why are you doing that? That's right. That's right. I think the first question you have to ask is, even in that middle of the email, if my spouse was sitting right next to me and they saw that email, would they approve? Right. And if the answer is no, then don't you don't send it. Send it. Yep. This is how simple it is. Don't even go down the path. It is a slippery slope, and you're going to be in the fair before you know it. Yep. Imagine what your kids are going to say when they find out. Imagine what your spouse are, is going to say. Why? Because those should be the number one relationships outside of if you're a faith of God or not a faith, your number one relationships in your life. 
You need to value those relationships and respect those relationships. If you're struggling with value and respect, you need to take a big pause button and start talking immediately and bring someone else in to build the team. We always talk about building the team. Yep. I'm going to tell you, the, remember what I talked about with seven stages of marriage? I always bring this up. There's that passion stage, that honeymoon stage. We all love it. And then there's this realization stage, sometimes within the first seven years, sometimes after the first week. It happens different for everybody. But when they get to the realization stage and go, oh, my gosh, this is hard. This is more than what I thought. I'm scared or I'm bored or I'm not sure how to handle this. Bring that team around you and keep working together because it is going to take effort. It's not always easy. And, yes, you're going to be bored sometimes, but I guarantee you, if you ride that through and you keep working on it together, it makes your marriage stronger and stronger and more enjoyable, and those boredom pieces will go away. You know, I'm you always, work with people. I'm always amazed, Deb, that in all aspects of our lives, I mean, I look at sports. I'm always doing sports at a team. I had the same seven guys I played full-court basketball with from the time I was 21 to the time I was almost 40. We were a team. We complimented each other. We loved to hang out. This is what we did. We didn't do much hanging out outside of that. That was our life, though. We played a lot of ball together. I think at work, we have teams. I have a team here. We compliment each other. We talk to each other. Every once in a while, there's a confrontation. But then we get into our personal lives, and we're solo artists. We're solo artists. And I think part of it, Deb, is that no one wants to admit they need help with their marriage. Everybody wants to just put on appearance and say, no, everything's fine here. We're good. Come on, we all right. need help with our marriages. Talk about that, right, and right. I think just the uh, the fear of embarrassment, talking about right. your marriage with other people, with complete strangers. Oh, that's so true. So we, we do want to have fun in our marriage. We absolutely do. But we do also have this thing, and it's super pervasive in our church environments. I mean, let's all face it. There's a lot of people who go to church on Sunday. Things could be falling apart during the week, and they get into church, and they fake it till they make it. They get out of church, the arguments start in the car again, as it did on the way there, and they don't feel like they're really, really thriving in those relationships. Guys, if you're not taking care of your relationship and talking about these things and putting yourself in healthy environments where you can, how in the world are you ever going to champion each other? Because that's what a marriage is about. I care for you as much as you care for me, and I am going to stand in the gap. In those seasons where one cares more than the other or maybe physically can't care, it's okay. Those are seasons or maybe a lifestyle that you have to come and learn how to grow through some of the things that hamper. So, I mean, I'm talking about like medical distress or things that yeah. are shocks or mm-hmm. the explosion stages of our marriage that just, you know, life, life is life. Things happen. How then can you be the best couple that you can be in that relationship? Honesty is the first thing, respect and love. And if you need to learn those learn them. Don't be afraid and run away. I guarantee you, if you run away, you will have the exact same problems in your next relationship multiplied because you're going to have a family before and a family after. Now you've doubled the burden. It's a good thing to have family. And for those of you that are second, third, fourth married, we want you to champion your relationship. We don't want you to have to go through another divorce. We want to love on you and we want to make sure you get to the best possible place. Well, Deb, as always, and I'm glad we hit this subject. We should probably do it again. In fact, maybe we get H. Norman Wright on that book, The Marriage Checkup, the way you plugged it. I haven't heard you do that very often, Deb, which means there's some real substance there. Maybe we bring him on. But as always, Deb, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on. Thank you.
You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can catch all of our Marriage on the Mind segments at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Go to the topic section. They're there. And by the way, click the This Day in History. I just looked at it the other day. There are now 77 great stories, and we've only been doing this six months. So I can only tell you, if you're taking a long drive and you just want some great storytelling, you want to think about your marriage, you want to think about your life, that's what we try and do here. Love, death, laughter, crying, real life, real life stories. No hard talk here, no political talk, stories and only stories on Our American Stories. American stories, and for the hour, we're going to celebrate the life of Arnold Palmer. He wasn't precious, and he wasn't privileged. One reporter called him Marlon Brando with a golf club. He created Arnie's army, well, because he had a love for people, and you're going to hear about it from the people, from every walk of life, movie stars, fellow golfers, ordinary Americans. You'll even hear Bob Green's remarkable Wall Street Journal column when, as a kid reporter, he actually stumbles out onto the course during an actual match to interview Arnold Palmer. And you won't believe what Palmer does because he could have done a lot of things. And it's a classic Palmer story. Was he the best ever? Who cares? Let others argue about that. He was a great one. Was he the most important? You're going to find out that he was. Because it ended up he democratized a sport that had been only for the elites. But he didn't just democratize it. He commercialized it. He was the first to win $1 million on the professional tour. He was the first to fly his own plane to a tournament. 68 PGA wins, 7 majors, 4 masters. 4. That's crazy. Born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania to a working-class family in a steel town. But let's take a listen first before we dig into this biography to some of the folks who remembered Arnold Palmer. Let's go to Latrobe, Pennsylvania first, his home, where an airport's named after him, because, again, he flew his own plane and he loved aviation. Here's a report from the small town TV station. You can see that a growing memorial is starting to take form here outside of the Arnold Palmer Regional Airport. And even the flags are at half staff today. People I talk to in this community tell me that this loss is truly heartbreaking. Stu Hartman stopped by the Arnold Palmer Regional Airport with flowers in hand, paying respect to an icon. He touched a lot of people in so many ways and a true gentleman. I had the opportunity to meet him once and he 
just the most down-to-earth guy you want to meet. We're going to miss him terribly. Arnold Palmer's legacy just wasn't on the golf course, but also Latrobe and surrounding community. The airport, named in his honor, where he served on the Westmoreland County Airport Authority. Great loss all over, but especially around here, uh, he was uh, he was a great guy, and he you know he did a lot for for everything, including the airport. Palmer was also the president and principal owner of the Latrobe Country Club. Just down the road in Youngstown, signs of gratitude and thanks and fly with angels, Arnie. A man whose kind hardness, spirit and generosity is just as big as his talents on the links. He sat with kings and queens and presidents and, and he was just as happy sitting with a bunch of guys from the mill or the, for the coal mines and he wasn't pretentious. He was a, it was what you know, everybody calls a good egg. We were just uh, so blessed to have had him uh, amongst us, and we're going to miss him. He sat with kings, and he did. You'll learn that General and President Dwight D. Eisenhower actually showed up at his doorstep to hang with him for a weekend and play some golf. But yet he was just as comfortable with just ordinary working-class folks because he saw himself as ordinary. There's just no doubt. Part of the big three in the 1960s of golf, Gary Player, Arnold Palmer, and Jack Nicklaus. But there was no rivalry in sports quite like Nicklaus and Palmer. Let's take a listen to Jack Nicklaus remembering his friend. We'd be playing together, and one of us would shoot 73, and the other one would shoot 74. We'd walk off, and he says, well, I got you today. Well, while the rest of the field just passed us. We didn't really care whether the rest of the field passed us or not. We wanted to beat each other. And uh, we've been that way all our lives, but yet then we'd finish the round. We'd shake hands and go have dinner together. Well, I think it's the legacy of the game of golf is he's the guy that popularized the game. He's the guy that moved forward. Uh, he handled, he led his life the right way. He was, uh, uh, he was, uh, he was a, strickler, uh, a stickler for uh, dress codes and, and uh, you know, uh, clean faces and uh, short hair. And, you know, he was pretty much the old school. He, he loved the traditions of the game. He loved the traditions of of how you're supposed to handle yourself and, and how you're supposed to represent uh, yourself and the game. I think the, the best memories are memories of uh, uh, the two of us and just being friends, having each other's back, doing, supporting each other in a variety of different ways. I spoke to him about two weeks ago on his birthday. I, I used to always call him on his birthday and uh, that was September 10th and uh, he, um, uh, he sounded great. And I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing good. He said, I'm coming back. He said, I'm starting to hit some golf balls again. And, uh, and I don't know whether he was or not, but that's what he said. Well, we talked a little bit. I thought he was doing great. I was really, uh, he was a lot better than he was uh, uh, at Augusta this year. At Augusta this year, he didn't look very good. And we were, were worried about him. And, uh, then, and then he, and he starts sounding better. You hate to lose a friend, and you hate to lose any kind of a good friend. And, but I, don't, I, I sort of look back and remember the good times we had uh, we're both getting pretty old, and uh, uh, you know I think that we had a lot of good times, a lot of good things that we did together, uh, a lot of a lot of great uh, uh, competitions, and a lot of great times together with our wives, and you know that's that's the things you remember. And that is the thing you remember. Here's Freddie Couples, who called into a sports station, and Freddie's a a remarkable golf talent, and he actually gets overwhelmed by the prospect of thinking about, talking about his close friend's passing. Uh, you remember your first encounter with Arnold? Uh, yeah, and I, I just want to start by, you know, I think you guys are doing a phenomenal job. 
I can't do anything, Freddie Couple says. Very powerful. When we come back, you're going to hear from so many more people on the life of Arnold Palmer. And you can only hope when you pass that people are crying like that about you, folks. Take a listen to The Secret. You're going to hear it from Arnold Palmer, from beyond, from all of his friends. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we're continuing with our celebration of the life of Arnold Palmer and what a life it was you just heard a grown man openly and just outwardly crying on air could not get it together and this is how he impacted by the way his peers so here are these people he's competing with every day day in day out and he forged deep relationships with the people who once they went on the course, he wanted to win. But the second he got off, he wanted to help their friend, his friends. And they were all friends, these guys, and you can hear it. Here's Lee Trevino. My goodness, we could do an hour on him. His life is so compelling. Here's Lee Trevino, what it was like playing with Arnold Palmer. Arnie couldn't move me. I was always, I love Arnold so bad. I always played bad with Arnie because I was making sure, you okay? You need a Coke? A hot dog? I want to take care of Arnie. Arnie's like a father figure to us, and he is, and, and I love this guy, and we're just wondering, you know, you okay, you okay? I, I remember playing the last competitive round that he played in Houston. I birdied one, I birdied two, we go to tee off at three, and he looked at me, and he says, what the hell are you doing? And I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? He said, don't embarrass me like that. I said, oh, okay. So, now we go to the next hole to part three. And I hit one up there about eight feet, and Arnie, Arnie hits it, you know, and Arnie's going, you know how he does it. And he's going like this, and the ball gets up on the bank and comes back in the water, and he said, how close is that? <laughs> and I said, Arnie, I said, I said, Augusta Pines were playing in Houston then. And I said, Arnie, I said, the pin's over there. He said, what? I said, that's a tree you're shooting at over there. I said, I said, the pin's over there. And that's when he quit. He quit right there. Right there, he said to me, he said, I'm not playing anymore. I said, what do you mean I'm not playing anymore? He said, that's it. I'm not, that's my last competitive shot. 
And I said, well, what do you want me to do? I'm going to get a card for you and I'll have you take him back to the, to the clubhouse. Oh, no, no, no. He said, I'm not going back to the clubhouse. He said, I'm going to finish my round. He says, but I don't want to keep score. So he told the guy holding the thing up, he said, put, put five under on there and leave it. I said, <laughs> Self-deprecating. I mean, here's the, the the greatest, perhaps, golfer of all time, and he's just cutting it up even as he's losing his sight and his his hand-eye and depth coordination and knowing that it's time to stop. He's still making it fun. I don't know how you do that, but, again, this is what made Arnold Palmer Arnold Palmer. Lee Trevino continues with another story. Arnie gets up there, and, and, and he's going around, and, and I've already got this figured out. I've already said, you know, this is his last round. My wheels are turning, and I said, I'm going to get his ball. I'm going to have him sign his ball, and I'm going to have his last competitive golf ball. So he's hitting so many in the lake because he's taking chances. I mean, he's just ripping everything. And he keeps losing balls, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried like hell that he's going he's to he's run out of ball. <laughs> he's going to end up signing one of mine. <laughs> Get on 17, still 500. He's still 500. People are going bad. And so he, he gets on 17, and just for some reason, for some reason, this, this group's putting on the green up there, and he says, Four! He said, I always wanted to do that. <laughs> but anyway, he finishes, and, and I'm, just, I'm just dying. Hoping, I'm looking for balls in the water every time he hits one. I'm looking fishing for him. I'm saying he's got to have that ball with a little umbrella on it. You know, he had all the golf balls have that little umbrella. And sure enough, he had one. So on my half, he got the ball. I got the ball. We didn't think about taking the shoes. You know, we didn't think about it. But he keeps all his shoes. And Trevino talked about how Palmer never threw anything away. They were doing that. A deal on him about all his stuff that he's had, all the equipment and everything. He's, yeah, he's never thrown away anything. You know, he still has all the balls he plays with. You know, Sneed kept them all, but he sold them. You know, uh, Arnie just keeps them. He's got the gloves. Every pair of shoes he ever owned, he still has. Every club. He's got a wall like that with all persimmon drivers in the wall that he that he's had over all the years. But he keeps the tractors. You know, the Toro tractor and everything. Yeah. It's just a, it's, it's a beautiful, you know, they could do a program on hoarding, you know what I mean? That, you know, yeah. But this is not a match. This is, this is really classy. Yeah. And you could just tell the love and the friendship and the collegiality and the details. He knew a lot of details about this man's life and listen to the laughter in the crowd. Greg Norman, the great champion, calls into a talk show and remembers his friend Arnold Palmer. I've known him for uh, 35 years, plus years, and uh, I knew him on the golf course, I knew him off the golf course, I knew him in a locker room, uh, I knew him in such social settings, and uh, where you've got to know the individual, and quite honestly, Stuart, um, there's two people that have, well, actually three, but two in the sporting world that have actually impacted my life dramatically, and that would be Muhammad Ali and Arnold Palmer. Both of them had magnetism and charisma oozing out of their skin. Um, and he was a man of the people, for the people. Wow, imagine being in that company. Two guys, one of them is Muhammad Ali, the other is Arnold Palmer. Here's Greg Norman on how Palmer brought money to the game. 
he brought money to the game. He, you know, every player today owes a debt of thank, uh, thank you to Arnold Palmer for what he's done. These guys, Roy McIlroy won $11.5 million yesterday. Uh, Roy McIlroy could never have won $11.5 million if it wasn't for Arnold Palmer and what he did bringing the audience uh, to the game of golf through the TV screen. And here's Norman giving advice to younger players. Every young player today should go back and watch old footage of Arnold Palmer, old footage where Arnold was walking down the fairways. There were no gallery roads back then. Uh, you actually walked down there. People were touching you, feeling you, smelling you, talking to you, wanting to be involved with you. And Arnold embraced every single one of them. And today, you know, a lot of players are very stoic. I get it from security concerns and all that stuff. Why, you know, you have security everywhere and people roped off everywhere. I get it. But quite honestly, Arnold was the one that brought people to him. They brought people to the game of golf. And we should all, all sit back and take a week of looking all, at all the old footage of Arnold Palmer and how he brought people to the game of golf. And this could apply to your business. This could apply to your church and to your family. And that's just his openness, his willingness to reveal himself to others, share with others, and just love on other people and total strangers. Here's the legendary sportscaster, Jim Nance. And my goodness, he was just tearing up the whole day. Jim was just struggling. I've never, ever seen Jim Nance struggle. He does Super Bowls. There's nothing Jim doesn't do. And here's Jim with Gary Player. Go out and watch Arnold Palmer for a day. Walk around 18 holes. Watch how many hands he shakes. How many people he makes eye contact with. Look at the patience he had with people with autographs. I mean, people just swarming on him. I mean, he's been so wonderful for the game. And here's Bill Murray. And you know him as an actor, but my goodness, if Bill Murray could do or be anything, it would be a professional golfer. And if he could be one person, there's no doubt he'd want to be Arnold Palmer. Let's take a listen to Bill Murray, who is on For the Win, our friends over at USA Today. Well, I mean, I I remember playing golf with him. He was grinding because he was getting ready for a senior uh, open and so he was very focused on playing. And then when it was ended, it ended he signed autographs for about almost three full hours straight. Wow. I never saw anything like it. I mean, he was sitting down, and they kept giving him like short glasses of Rolling Rock, but he signed for like two hours and 45 minutes straight. I never saw anything like it. It's amazing. I just want to stand there. You know, we'll be doing an hour on Bruce Springsteen soon. His... his memoir born to run is something almost anyone should read even if you're not a music fan but for anybody who ever had the opportunity to see bruce in a concert it was really the same thing the first guy to go out into the audience to throw himself into the audience and the first guy to just say as long as the audience is out there i'm going to keep playing and still to this day in his mid-60s playing four hour concerts because his feeling is look folks have driven a long way to see me this may be the only time they've ever seen me or ever will They've put down their hard money, hard-earned money on the line, and I'm going to give them back more than I possibly can. As John Stewart once said about him, he leaves no gas in the tank. And Arnold Palmer left no gas in the tank. When we come back, we'll hear from Dan Patrick. We'll hear Arnold Palmer talk about his father, his roots, and so much more, including how Arnold Palmer professionalized and commercialized professional sports. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Arnold Palmer, celebrated for the hour.
please join me in a welcome, a salute, and a heartfelt thank you to our four-time Masters champion, Mr. Arnold Palmer. This is Our American Stories. We're celebrating the life of Arnold Palmer. That was the kickoff to the 2016 Masters. And what a better way to do it than to introduce to the public again and always the man who won four green jackets. Four. Now let's pick up with more celebrations. We just heard from Bill Murray. There was one more we wanted to play before we dig into the life of Arnold Palmer. But my goodness, what better way to recall a life than to hear the voices of so many different people from so many different walks of life. Here's the broadcaster, Dan Patrick, talking about the impact Palmer had on him. I still go back to one of my favorite stories. One of my favorite moments in doing this was at the Fred Meyer Challenge. Peter Jacobson, he uh, hosted this in Portland. And he'd have all the golf pros there raising money for charity. And I brought the radio show up there with Rob Dibble when I was at the mothership. And we're on the 18th. And then I thought... Arnold and Jack and Peter Jacobson were playing the 18th. And and I thought I would bring a microphone out there while on the show live and follow them off to the side. So Peter Jacobson looks at me on the side of the fairway and he motions for me to come here, come here. And I don't even know what he's talking about. They're playing. And I, I walk out on the course and Jake goes, isn't this great? I said, yeah, like what am I doing out here? And he said, walk in with us, walk in with us. So I'm behind Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Peter Jacobson, going into the 18th. And to walk up and hear that swell, hear that applause, they hear it all the time. But to be able to see it from their perspective, still one of the great moments I ever had. And Arnie was so generous. I remember that handshake of his. It hurt. It was a big hand. He had these big forearms. But he was... He was James Bond before James Bond. He was dashing. He made golf cool. It was just fun to be around that. He hadn't played in 43 years the last time he was on tour. PJ Tour, 43 years. And he was still one of the top earners. He had this name, this name that rose above his sport. He was, had his own soft drink. I mean, he was famous in you know, non-golf circles. That's when you know you've made it. But Arnold Palmer had his own plane. I mean, everything about him. You know, he, wore a, he wore a cardigan and looked great. But there was just something about Arnold. You know, he just had a heater in his mouth and his sleeves rolled up and just ready to go. Whatever it was, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. A little bit about his life. Born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, a working-class steel mill town, the son of Doris and Milford Jerome Deacon Palmer. He learned golf from his father who had suffered from polio at a young age and was head professional and greenskeeper at Latrobe County Country Club, allowing young Arnold to accompany his father as he maintained the course. Let's hear Arnold talk about his father and how his dad was his biggest influence, describing him as, well, tough, but honest. He was a tough, hard-working golf pro. And he learned both ends of the business the hard way, by experience and by personal uh, work and, and, and fun. And, uh, and he was tough. He never, 
He never let up. He stayed tough uh, all his life. And as a matter of fact, I think about it, uh, he died a tough guy. He played 27 holes of golf the day he passed. And he was tough. He was honest. And uh, he was probably as honest uh, as I've ever seen anyone. And he, he said it the way it was. He did it the way it was. Uh, he, he helped everybody he could. Uh, he contributed. Uh, probably the toughest guy that he dealt with was his son. Palmer goes on to talk about not having much money in his early life growing up and the sacrifices his dad made. In my family, my father and our, and our family uh, had no money most of our early lives. We, we would come out and hunt rabbits and pheasants and, uh, and take them home, and my mother would soak them in salt water overnight, and, and we'd eat them the next day, and that was great stuff. Uh, but that was part of all of the education. Uh, and, and my father, when he bought uh, groceries, if he didn't have enough money to pay for it, I, I remember him scraping up enough money to go pay the bill, and, and he did. And he, he, he sacrificed the things that he liked to pay the bills for groceries that we ate. And, and that was his life. That was the way he lived in the early days. And, and of course, he told me how he appreciated uh, the fact that he was lucky enough to be a golf pro and to uh, be able to make a living doing what he was doing. And here's Arnold talking about his dad's first compliment. The first compliment Arnold ever gets from him, and it was after winning the National Amateur Championship. Nice corn, boy. That's all he said. But that, in a way, wasn't that the first time he complimented you? My father was very tough. He was never one for throwing out rewards or uh, congratulations. And, and when he said, nice going, boy, I knew what it meant. And I felt it, and I was grateful. I called it the turning point. And... Uh, it was the turning point in a way. It, it gave me uh, the confidence that I needed to go ahead, turn pro, and get on the tour and play. And, of course, with the contract that I had with Wilson, which goes back a few years, uh, it was pretty restricted because uh, I wasn't getting a lot of money. I was getting enough to survive. And we're going to talk about that restrictive relationship with Wilson and the nature of the business of golf and the business of sports in just a minute as we go to the last part of our celebration. But what you're about to hear about Arnold Palmer, my goodness, I had no idea myself. But that victory was the turning point in his life, winning the U.S. Amateur in Detroit in 1954. After that match, Palmer stopped the job he had at the time of selling paint and then continued to play in tournaments. There, in a weight memorial tournament in Shawnee on Delaware, Pennsylvania, he met his future wife, Winnie Walzer, and they would remain married for 45 years until her death 
1999. And Arnold remarried again in 2005. And his kids were so happy. And so were friends. And one just said this in a golf magazine about dad. I think the companionship that dad has now found with his new wife, Kit, is just what he needed. I think he needed someone that enjoys the things he enjoys. I think that everybody embraced her in a way that I don't think, well, I don't think she ever felt there was a looming presence of my mom. But I think it's nice to see my dad finally again with someone he loves. And it took him six years to find new love. And I think, again, one woman, man, simple life, simple principles. And by the way, the way he talked about his dad, it, it almost word for word sounds like Brett Favre and the way he talked about his dad. Not abulence, not a, a kind word every minute, but when he finally did say, good job, son, or that a boy, my goodness, those words meant something. These fathers were living in examples of how to be good dads. They may not have spoken the words a lot, but they were there. Their presence was felt. Their love felt. Arnold Palmer, his life. When we come back, the business life of Arnold Palmer. This is a heck of a story. This is Our American Stories, our final segment, an hour-long celebration of the life of Arnold Palmer. And now this is the business life, because he changed sports as we know it. For every athlete that plays today, they have Arnold Palmer to thank for the story you're about to hear. Let's get the 30,000 overview from Dominic Chu, who filed this report for CNBC. I look back on Arnold Palmer's legacy off the golf course. Perhaps no other man in the history of golf did more to bring the game to the masses than Arnold Palmer. And he did so with the style and flair that helped set the stage for golf as we know it today. But it's off the golf course where Palmer parlayed his prowess on the links into a business empire. His business and endorsement deals have made him one of the richest sports figures in history. He's endorsed dozens of brands, everything from Cadillac to Hertz to Rolex to Pennzoil. Same Pennzoil. New package. According to Forbes, his net worth is estimated to be around $875 million, and that lands him at third among the world's highest paid athletes. Palmer's business empire has a variety of different operations. Among them, a golf course design company that has had a hand in the creation of over 300 golf courses all across the world. He had an ownership interest in famed golf resort Pebble Beach. He teamed up with a lawyer named Mark McCormick, and that relationship was a cornerstone to what would eventually become sports agency giant International Management Group, or IMG. He even licensed his name to one of his favorite drinks, a mixture of lemonade and iced tea. The Arizona Beverage Company produces over 400 million cans of Arnold Palmer's each year. And it's fitting that television propelled him to stardom in his early years. For in 1995, he helped start the Golf Channel, which at the time was the first ever single sport cable network. 
This week, the golfing world converges on Chaska, Minnesota for the USA versus Europe Ryder Cup competition. It's held every two years. Remembering Arnold Palmer's life and contributions to the game is expected to be a part of the celebration. But off the course, Palmer will be remembered as one of the kings of sports marketing, laying the groundwork for other athletes to follow in the legacy that he worked so hard to create. For Nightly Business Report, I'm Dominic Chu at the New York Stock Exchange. And Matt Fullerman wrote a terrific piece on what Arnold Palmer meant to the modernization and commercialization of sports. And when it was time to renew his contract with Wilson, and it was at the time just almost a, a, a slave labor contract, they just barely paid anybody anything. Palmer and Wilson spent a year in negotiations, eventually drafting a long-term deal, but Palmer knew that something was missing. Palmer is a, is a pretty conservative guy, and he wants to get the deal done. But he also wants this one other thing, which is a life insurance policy, and a life insurance policy that would you know, protect his two young daughters and his wife in case anything happened to him. He's driving around to tournaments in, you know, in, in the middle of the night, uh, flying in rickety planes all over the country, and really all eventually, and pretty soon thereafter, all over the world. You know, this is not the the, the safest thing. And, you know, everybody wants a life insurance policy to protect their families. And it would have cost Wilson $880 a year. And they would have been taking money that would have been gone to him as income anyway, and just before it went to him as income, buying a, you know, a tax-deferred life insurance policy. And everyone says, okay, except for James Cooney, who was the CEO of Wilson at the time. And... You know, he just did not have any respect for athletes and, and golfers, and there was just no way he could think of giving a life insurance policy uh, for even at the low cost of $880 a year to a golfer. And that became all Palmer's line in the sand. It was a hard line. Palmer left Wilson as soon as his contract allowed and started his own business. There were so many things that could have gone wrong. So why did Palmer take such a chance. He risked it all, and he did it because he realized that if he didn't do it, golfers and athletes were just never going to be respected. If he, if the best golfer in the world, the most charismatic athlete on the planet at that point, arguably, wasn't going to get a fair deal, then no one was going to get a fair deal. And that's why he, that's why he said enough is enough. And it turned out all right because uh, none of those terrible things happened. Um, He launched the Arnold Palmer Golf Company. So within about three years of him turning down the deal with Wilson, he went from making roughly $10,000 a year off the sale of equipment and golf balls and things like that that had his name on it to making roughly $500,000 a year for that. And that was the launch of an empire. And by the way, for a little bit of levity, we heard about that drink. Here's Arnold Palmer telling the story of how the drink came to be named after him. Well, I will tell you, it started right here, uh, about 100 yards from where we are. I came home one day and uh, my wife made a lot of iced tea for lunch. And I said, hey, babe, I've got an idea. I said, you make the iced tea, make a big pitcher. And we'll just put a little lemonade in it and see how that works. So we we mixed it up, and I got the solution about where I wanted it. 
and I put the lemonade in it and I had it for lunch after working on the golf course. And I thought, boy, this is great, babe. I'm going to take it when I play golf. I'm going to take a thermos of iced tea and lemonade. I was building a golf course in uh, Palm Springs, and it was a very hot summer day. It was about 115 degrees, and we had gone in for lunch. And I uh, said to the waitress, could you do me a favor? And she said, sure, what is it? I said, I want an iced tea, but I want about a... Oh, a third or a quarter of it in lemonade. All of a sudden, the waitress went over to another table, and the lady at the table said, I want an Arnold Palmer. Well, all of us turned our head. We thought, what is she talking about? And she said, I want what he ordered. And it was, it was me, and, it, and that was the, and she called it an Arnold Palmer. Well, from that day on, it spread like wildfire. I was embarrassed to ask for an Arnold Palmer. I always say, can I have a, a, an iced tea and, and put about a third of it in lemonade? And they said, oh, you want an Arnold Palmer. <laughs> I just finally said, well, I won't fight the battle anymore. I'll just ask for an Arnold Palmer think maybe they won't know who I am. <laughs> and always self-deprecating. And you've heard from a lot of people this hour, from Bill Murray, and you're going to hear from Jim Nance in a bit, and Dan Patrick, but the best story of all was by Bob Green. And we tried to reach him, but Bob's just hard to reach, so I'm going to do a reading of his column because, well, Bob's such a good writer. And here's his story, and I think this illustrates why Palmer was so loved. Here's Arnold Palmer, who is everything, and here's a kid with a folded-up sheaf of copy paper and a ballpoint pen, who is nothing, and in a split second, Palmer has to make a decision. The decision, whichever way it goes, won't affect Palmer's life at all, but it has the potential to make the kid giddy with delight or to make him feel like an embarrassed idiot. This is the summer of 1967. Palmer has flown to central Ohio to play in a one-day pro-am. At 37 years old, he is one of the most adored and respected figures in American sports. The kid is me. I've caged a summer job helping out the lower circulation daily in a two-paper town. I'm working nights, so I don't have to be in the office until mid-afternoon. So I go to the golf course by myself in the morning. There are many golfers playing in the Pro-Am, a lot of them local duffers. But the crowds are following Arnie. It's as if the Beatles are performing on a hill and on a bill with a bunch of garage bands. There are ropes holding back the throngs, the vaunted Arnie's army. From one tee, Palmer comes into view, hitching up those trousers like no one else could. He's striding swiftly toward where his ball has landed, and here's the idiot part. I duck under the ropes and walk right up to him. You're not supposed to do such a thing. You're not supposed to go under the ropes. I didn't know. Maybe I did. I start to ask Palmer a question. Those pieces of copy paper in my hand triple-folded like I'd seen the real reporters do. And the marshals are approaching. This is not going to be good. If I'm tossed out or carried out, it will be in front of all of those people. It will be a pretty comical, humiliating scene. And my Uncle Harmon, my mother's brother, is one of those people in the gallery who will witness it. I ask Palmer the question. He gives me a look. Who the heck are you? I work at the local paper, I tell him. 
I don't mention just how low-level and transitory my job is or that no one has assigned me to be at the tournament. And here's the moment. Here's where Palmer either will motion for the marshals or give me the heave-ho, or he won't. He kind of laughs at the absurdity of this. Who is dumb enough at a professional golf event to duck under the ropes and approach a player? And not just any player, the most revered player in the game. Palmer patiently answers the question. He generously gestures to keep me walking with him. He gives the marshals a little signal. Don't worry about it. This will be fine. Thus, for that one magical day, a day that when it started, I had no reason to believe would be anything other than unexceptional. I walked the entire golf course in the company of Arnold Palmer. Wow. And so we close out with one of the great sports broadcasters of all time. There's nobody like Jim Nance. He's done it all. Super Bowls, the biggest personalities in sports history. And you could tell throughout the day as he was commenting that this was personal, the passing of Arnold Palmer. And so we close out the hour with Jim Nance. You know, his golf career has been over for a long time. And it'll always live on as a legendary career. But Arnold Palmer, the man, and how you treat people, that will live forever. 